This is the Rebellious Wellness Over 50 podcast for women over 50 who aren't done yet. You may have seen the worst of aging and are hoping there's a better way. There is, and I'm going to show you how. In interviews, book reviews, rants, and stories, each week, I'm going to bring you the latest science-based info on how to age better. I'm Gregory Ann Cox, and I believe it's time to bust the myth that aging equals decline in every area of life. It pisses me off, and it's BS. Look, aging happens, but it doesn't have to ruin your life. You just need to get a little rebellious in your approach. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50, where we talk about the things that you probably don't find on the first three or four pages of a Google search when you're looking for alternatives to what is broken. Speaking of broken and unbroken, my guest today is Michael Unbroken. I'm very excited to have him here because he's going to talk about a topic that a lot of people want to ignore, which is the results of childhood trauma as adults. Michael, welcome. Thank you, my friend. Very excited to be here with you today. Yeah, and, uh, I've had a couple of conversations with people where the subjects were taboo, shame, dying, grieving, being mad if you're a caretaker. And this is one of those conversations that I think at a certain age, let's say my age, you're probably young in your 40s. Are you 40 yet? I'm in my mid 30s. Okay. And it's nothing to do with how you look. <laughs> I just wasn't sure after reading your bio. Yeah. But I think as we get older, if we have had a childhood trauma of any kind, we learn to deal with whatever the consequences are. So I'm going to start at the top of this conversation and ask you, is your coaching to help people get through what the effects of trauma are? Is, it, is there ever a time when it's too late to work on ourselves? No, I, I don't think it is too late ever. I mean, if you're still alive, you still have an opportunity. <laughs> I mean, every single moment of every single day, you're, you're faced with a multitude of decisions and one decision differently will change your life forever. I think the hard part when it comes to this idea of you know, doing the work at regardless of your age is people go, well, it's too late for me. And I go, no, it's not. One of my clients right now is 72 years old. It is not too late for you. You're choosing for it to be too late for you. And so, you know, I think that's a big part of the nomenclature of Western societies in general is we kind of measure people when they get to these certain ages and we go, up oh, too late. Sorry. Good luck in the next life. And I'm just like, nope, you're still alive. So do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of thinking about it. So tell the listeners about your story. How did you come to be a trauma coach? Yeah. So why, why don't I give you the elevator pitch here? Because I think context is everything. When I was four years old, my mother, who was a drug addict and alcoholic, she actually cut off my right index finger. And my stepfather, super abusive, the kind of guy you praise, never your stepfather, never met my real dad, spent the majority of my childhood in poverty and homeless. At one point, I lived with 30 different families in the course of two years. I got high for the first time when I was 12, drunk at 13, expelled from school at 15. I was selling drugs, breaking into houses, stealing cars, hurting people. You know, and luckily I got put into a last chance program and I still didn't graduate high school on time. They basically handed me the diploma and they're like, you got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and I was looking at my life and I was like, okay, how do I get through all this abuse, this trauma, this poverty, this homelessness, the chaos of my existence? And I was like, I need to make money, right? Money felt like the, the easy answer because that's all, it felt like the crux of everything wrong in the world. 
So I said, I'm going to make $100,000 a year legally by the time that I'm 21. This was super important, this legal part, because my friends were getting arrested. My uncle's in prison for life. I've been in handcuffs. You know, Eventually, my three childhood best friends were murdered. I could just foresee the future. And so I land this job at 20 years old, heading into 21 with a Fortune 10 company. No high school diploma, no college education, start making six figures, hit my goal. And then I was 350 pounds, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, drinking myself to sleep, and I put a gun in my mouth. I was just done. I was like, money, you were supposed to solve all these problems. Why didn't you fix me, money? And and it didn't. And And you would think that would be like the rock bottom moment, but it wasn't. It was the next day. I'm laying in bed. Keep in mind here, I'm 350 pounds. I'm eating chocolate cake, smoking a joint, and watching the CrossFit games. Like, if that's not rock bottom, <laughs> like, I just really don't know what is. And uh, I went in the bathroom, I looked at myself in the mirror, and I, I just didn't recognize the reflection. And it was taken back to being eight years old. And the water company came and they turned our water off. I grew up in Indianapolis. I grew up in a city and we were so poor, they turned our water off. And I took this little blue bucket from the backyard and I walked across the street to the neighbor's house and I turned on their spigot. And for the first time in my life, I stole something, I stole water. And I remember being like, when I'm a grown up, this isn't going to be my life. And to most extents, it wasn't. I had no problem with money. I was financially secure. I had a nice car, blah, blah, blah. But the trauma, I was still just this hurt little boy. I had not done any of the work. Well, in the moment of looking in the mirror and having this recollection, I asked myself, like, what are you willing to do to have the life that you want to have? And the words, no excuses, just results, just like started reverberating in my brain. And 11 years later, here I am talking to you. And in this process, there's a tremendous amount of work. Therapy, group therapy, men's group therapy, EMDR, CBT, NLP, all the acronyms, going to AA and SA and all of the meetings, just trying to figure things out, getting a coach, going to courses, going to conferences, reading the books, listening to the podcast, watching the videos. And then it turned into education. And today I have, I've forgotten to be honest with you, it's like 35 trauma-informed education certifications and certificates because I was like trying to find the root cause of why my life was chaotic. And today I'm very fortunate and I didn't sign up for this. Let me be very clear. No part of me was like, you need to be great. I want to be the spokesperson for children who get their ass kicked. That was never a part of my story. That's not what I wanted, but I was like, if I don't do it, who's going to? And so I've been fortunate enough to have written a best-selling book, be an award-winning speaker, travel the world, speak on stages, you know, have a podcast and coach people. And I've worked with hundreds and thousands of people around the world who have consumed my content, who have their lives have become better or different or something that it wasn't before. And, you know, again, it wasn't my intention. It just kind of happened. And I think sometimes the universe puts things in front of you and you can either ignore them or you can run with them. And that brought me to sitting here talking to you today. Okay. Well, you take a deep breath. That was a lot. Not to mention your childhood was a lot, but you said that surviving childhood trauma was easier than owning myself. What does that mean, owning myself, for those people that might be in your position? Yeah. Owning yourself, owning your life is very much about looking in the mirror and knowing that you're doing the things you're supposed to do. 
I think inherently we all have this feeling about knowing if what we're doing in our moments in our day to day are right or wrong. For us, I don't necessarily mean from a societal standpoint because I don't think that really matters. But are is the thing keeping you awake at night? Are you addressing it? Are you dealing with it? Are you taking therapy seriously? Are you taking coaching seriously? Are you quitting smoking when you know you need to quit smoking? Like, are you doing the things to make your life different? to move you towards what it is that you believe you're capable of having. And there's nothing, in my opinion, more difficult than looking in the mirror and being okay with the reflection on the other side. And that journey was so incredibly tedious. And even to this day, it still is because it's always a journey. It was far more tedious because here's what happens when you come through abuse. By default, you learn to turn yourself off as a defensive mechanism. It becomes dangerous to be you as a child. Every time you move to your intuition, this idea, this thing of who it is that you believe you are, there's some kind of pain associated with it. That doesn't necessarily mean you had a traumatic experience like a home like I had. Sometimes at school, because the teacher in third grade tells you, who do you think you are when you color the moon purple, right? And then you find yourself trying to fit into the social norms because it's safe there. There's less ridicule, less shame, less guilt. And then on a long enough timeline, what happens, you find yourself at 18, 27, 34, 52, 72 years old. And you're like, I have no idea who I am. Well, yeah, because you've turned it off for so long. The idea that you would make a choice or decision for yourself is terrifying. And so that's what I mean by that. Learning to trust my intuition, believe I'm making the right decisions for myself, show up for myself, do the things I say I'm going to do, right? Responsibility, accountability. That was far, far, far more difficult than going through abuse because for me, the abuse was A, it was a part of my daily life. I was just used to it. It became my nomenclature. And B, the the tactics I had for survival was, I love your favorite band. I love your favorite food. I love your favorite music. I'm going to wear the clothes you wear. People called me a copycat all the time when I was a kid because I just didn't know how else to be. Right. Because every time I tried to be me, there was pain. And so when you get to this place as you're trying to formulate and create who you are in the real world, the world outside of that, the world where every day you're living life and trying to figure it out, the hardest thing that we do is get to that place where we're making choices and decisions for ourselves. So that's a very long winded answer to your question, but I hope that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I was reading a, um, psychology journal about childhood abuse and trauma in, in before their conversation. And one of the things that they talked about is the stages of development that a child goes through who is not in a, an abusive situation, verbal abuse, whatever it is. And the things that don't, you know, if you can't develop to stage uh, at eight years old, what should be developing self-confidence, self-love, maybe, you know, a, a sense of who we are in the world and making our own decisions, then eight to 12 and 12 to 40, and it goes on and on. The things that didn't happen then can't happen as an adult unless the person addresses them. So if we have arrested development in terms of confidence, decision-making, this and that, we may earn less. We may not get a partner, a relationship that's meaningful. Can you speak to that? Yeah, 100%. Because I think it just kind of goes back to this idea. You know, if growing up, I, I was terrible in school. Uh, I had pretty much straight Fs the entire time. 
And I failed a business course my senior year, which put me in this position. I failed all my classes, let's be real. But it put me in this position where I had to go to summer school. But when I was there, like I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to critically think. I don't know how to make meaning of things. I don't know how to like expose myself to the idea that I'm not right all the time, right? Because being right all the time, being a perfectionist, trying to be a control freak, that was a survival mechanism. Okay, so how does that play out in the real world? That doesn't work. Why do I keep getting fired from these jobs? Why do I keep being in these toxic relationships? Why do I keep this, 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 this? It's it's a complete correlation. I think it's dismissive to pretend that your childhood doesn't impact your life because if it's true, which I believe it is, we're the sum total of all of our experiences leading up to this moment, then that means all the things that we did have and did not have create and shape who we are today. So the lack of love, kindness, compassion leads to this place where we get involved in relationships that lack those things because we believe that that's what we're supposed to have, Mm -hmm. right? And vice versa, right? We're informed by the experiences of our life. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes total and complete sense that you would, I mean, think about it. I think so much of education is is bound to this idea of creating an understanding of who you are in the context of the world that we live in. And so if you lack that education, how do you know who you are? Right? I think the thing that is interesting and in the way that I've educated myself is it's about subjects and topics that I'm obsessed with, I'm fascinated with, that I want to make meaning of. And so those are all replacements for the things I didn't get when I was a child. Right. Mm -hmm. I wrote down recently in in a, a blog I was writing the fact that the number one reason I have mentors and I have coaches in my life is because I didn't have a father when I was a child. Mm. And I wanted a man in my life to guide me into manhood. And that is still a part of my experience today. That's why my coaches are men. It's not that I can't have women coaches, and I have, but the the coaches in which I find the most growth are with men because I look at my life and go, all I ever wanted was a dad. So I'm going to go and get it myself, right? And so I think those gaps, when you identify them and you can make meaning of them, create this really fascinating core causation and correlation as you kind of measure your life and where you're at. Hmm. I was thinking about coaching. I'm a coach as well as you are. And what I have found over the years, maybe you'll find, tell me this is true for you too. You have a lot on your website about who this is for and who this isn't for. And I think some people who have had to create coping mechanisms as they grew up because of unsafe situations are really good at charming themselves out of what they need because it's rationalization, but it's a very high level. And so sometimes people say, I don't need a coach because I know what I already need or know and I can handle it, that kind of thing. And you say when you're coaching, you're looking to solve for the unknown variable. And I think that this is if we can get people, me with the women I work with on their health, their lifestyle, you with the child abuse survivors, warriors, as you call them, if we could get them to understand we're looking for something that they probably can never see themselves. Yeah. It's like a mirror, right? When I'm sitting down with my clients, and I was actually just coaching someone right before we hopped on here together, 
when I'm coaching my clients, I'm looking for the thing that they can't put words to, mm. right? I'm looking for in that conversation when they're stuck, when they're self-loathing, when they're out of habit and routine, when they're not showing up for themselves, when they're not doing the work, when they're feeling like, you know, woe is me, because that's part of the experience too. I go, but did you think about this? Mm-hmm. Right? Have you thought about that? Did you do this? Have you moved towards there? Like all these different ideas and understanding, because sometimes I agree. I think as human beings, innately, we know the thing. But even though we know the thing, I mean, you're solving these massively complicated equations. So if I can find that variable, if I can solve for X in the conversations that we're having, it's very much about looking at that mirror and going, this is the part that you don't see between the mirror and where you are in real time, right? Somewhere in that space of that reflection, there's something that you haven't identified. That to me is what coaching is for. The other part of it is I think, and there's a layer to it of I'm always measuring like in my own life. And this is what I I tell my clients as well when they come to work with me. I go, I'm just looking for the person who's one step ahead of me. Mm. Why? Because it doesn't do me a lot of good for me to go after somebody who's five miles up the road. I got five miles to catch up, Mm -hmm. right? So if I can just get in connection with someone who's one step ahead of me, and that means what it means to people, right? But with that, that helps give you a tremendous amount of value because I think what happens in coaching far too often is people start measuring them and their self-worth against their own coach. And I'm like, you're missing the boat here. I don't need you to be me. I don't, I don't even want you to be like me at all. That's nonsense. I want you to be you and the best version of that. And I just simply want to hand you the framework so you can step into that a little bit more. And so when you're in that framework and you're going down this path and you're walking through these tunnels to try to find the light on the other side, I'm just looking for that thing that you can't see because I'm one step ahead of you. Yeah. And I would add to that. I know for myself and I've seen it with clients, the problem is ginormous in our heads. The thing that we don't like about ourselves, what we're not accomplishing, all those things are just, it's just this big blob called the thing. And another thing a coach can do is like you said, listen for what's not being said, but can see how this thing could be broken down. Cause we've been there, we've done it with other people. We've done it for ourselves. There are these little steps that you're going to take. You can't see the little ones cause you want to make the bit. You want to go to the five miles, five blocks ahead, right? That's human nature. We want to be over there. But maybe we just need to do these little incremental things to help get us to there, whatever there is. Yeah. I say this all the time. Change happens in the incremental, the very small microscopic decisions that we make every single day. Mm-hmm. Right. And and in those small microscopic granular choices, right? Getting out of bed on time, not smoking the cigarette, writing in the journal going to the gym, not going to the gym because maybe you need a day off, like whatever that thing is, you build momentum, right? And I think momentum is what is required to create massive sustainable change, right? So if you can just keep going forward a little bit every single day, like like for real, when I started this journey 11 years ago, momentum for me was like, I want to take a shower today. I'm not going to play video games for nine hours and get stoned all day. I'm going to go to the gym instead of into the McDonald's and then into the bar because they're strategically placed, right? I'm going to go and I'm going to do this one little thing that'll make my life different. I'm not trying to measure it against better, right? Better, that's subjective. I don't know. Was better yesterday better than today? I have no idea, but it's different. So can I be a little different every single day? 
Mm-hmm. And that value that we place on something better, worse, good, bad, those are dangerous places to, to live in, right? Because like you said, is today better than yesterday? I don't know, but I did something different. That's a really important distinction for people because if yesterday um, I ate a McDonald's Happy Meal and today I only had the fries, does it make it a better day? I don't know, but at least I didn't do the whole thing. At least I limited what I said I wasn't going to, right? So, and I were so quick to bring out the mean boy or girl in our lives to ourselves. You talk about self-love and that's, this is a segue into self-love, which may seem, you know, unnecessarily girly, frilly. I don't need that. I'm a guy or I'm a powerful woman. I'm a CEO. I'm whatever. Everybody has to learn how to love themselves. Would you agree? Yeah. The, the hardest thing that we do is learning to love ourselves. And, and that's because we come, again, from these structures, societies, you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're not capable enough. And we start telling ourselves these stories. Well, what you think becomes what you speak, and what you speak become your action, and your action become your reality. So if every single day, all you're doing is telling yourself, I'm not good enough, I'm not deserving, I don't have love, I don't deserve abundance, I deserve to be poor, whatever those things are, guess what? You're going to create action, consciously or subconsciously. You're going to create action in your life that's going to make that reflect. That will be your reality. And so the first thing, this is literally the first thing I teach anyone who comes into my programs. When I coach them, when I work with them, I say, take a piece of paper, take a pen, and you're going to write this down. I am the kind of person who is kind to myself. I am the kind of person who is kind to myself. And you're going to convince yourself that this is true by saying it every single day until it becomes your reality, right? And in that process, here's what I want people to understand. We're saying things to ourselves that if we said to someone else would get us arrested or punched in the face, (laughs) right? And yet you're talking to yourself that way. Do you not see the juxtaposition of how chaotic that is? And so when you start adapting this radical self-love, right? This place where you just go, all right, I'm going to show up for myself. I'm going to build my life. I'm going to take care of myself and filter it through kindness. Now, I think that you have to be clear because there's a, there's a lot of differentiating understanding is what self-love means. So you have to define this yourself. You have to figure out what that means in your life, but I'm just funneling it through kindness, through my value system. I look at my life and go, all right, I'm going to be kind to myself. And and people get caught off guard when I say this because I'm six foot four. I'm covered in tattoos, right? People go, that guy? That guy? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Why? Because I spent my whole life not having it. When I was unkind to myself, my life was a disaster, right? And then when I adopted and adapted kindness and kind of force fed it to myself, that built into self-love, right? That built into grace, that built into compassion, that built into, okay, how do I measure failure as data instead of destroying myself over spilt milk, right? And so this process of, of learning to love yourself, it's, it's a conundrum in itself, right? Because what are the measures for it? Who have you witnessed in front of you do it? Because for me growing up and for many people from traumatic backgrounds, there is none, Right. I watched my mom and my grandma and my, my family drink themselves to death, take pills to the point where they were in, like, it's indescribable. I watched my community poison itself. I'm guilty of this too. I helped that. I sold drugs in the community. I broke in the houses. I stole cars there. I, I will always say that I'm a part of that too. 
right? And so the measurement for self-love doesn't exist. You don't see it. It's not there. There's no learned behavior. There's nothing you can hold on to. So you have to create that. And that's why I said you got to identify for yourself what that means. And for me, it's very much, very, very much about this idea of can I look in the mirror and know that I'm living life in alignment with my values, who I want to be, moving towards my goals while simultaneously showing up for myself every single day? Right. So it's just like, again, it's just a, a very complicated equation. So I'm thinking of people that haven't had the trauma that you had in childhood. And yet they had a traumatic childhood. Does verbal abuse count? Does withholding love and demanding more and perfection count? I mean, what for your coaching I'm talking about, what would be somebody's I fit in this category or I don't, or isn't there such a thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's so many different levels to it. I'm on the high end of it. Like, let's keep it real. People hear my story, they go, that's a movie. I go, no, that's real. Yeah. Right. Most of my clients are not even in the realm. They're they're just not. And that's okay. It's not a fucking competition, right? It's very much about, can we look at our lives and go, okay, I'm always looking for causation and correlation, right? Rhyme and reason. That thing that you're... like, Literally, people have to understand this. That thing that your mom said to you when you were 11 years old could be the very thing blocking you from all of the potential you have in your life. And so there's different levels of trauma. You know, in the, in the 1994... Dr. Folletti and the Kaiser Permanente and the California Center for Disease Control did this thing called the ACE survey, Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. And what they were looking for was, was there actually a correlation between child abuse and long-term adult detrimental health ramifications? And it was astoundingly yes. Okay. So I would call this inconclusive at best. I think that we need a tremendous amount of more research, more money thrown at it, more of this done. But the baseline is this. They found that on average, out of this questionnaire of 10 questions, that 83% of people answered yes to one of the questions, meaning they had this adverse childhood experience. Chances are, if you answered yes to one, you'd answer yes to more. Well, the more you answered yes, the more the correlation between these long-term detrimental health ramifications started to appear, right? And so the questions were, was, and I won't go through all of them, but did anyone in the household physically abuse you? Did anyone molest you? Did a parent ever hit each other? Was there a divorce? Was there suicide attempts in the family? You know, and so on and so forth. And so you can look up a survey and find it. And what they found is when you started to get to this space of four or more answers yes to these questions, you were 5,200, 5,200% more likely to commit suicide than someone who had zero, 2,200% more likely to use alcohol, 2,000% more likely to smoke cigarettes, right? Correlation, causation. So I come across this research and I was fascinated by it. And then I thought about something that hit me like a brick to the face. I was like, well, what about the non-reports? What about the households where they say, if you tell anyone, I'll kill you? What about all the chaos where that exists, right? But also, what about those times where just in passing, that person said that one singular thing to you, or that bully bullied you, or that thing happened over here, right? So again, I think it's inconclusive, and I would argue just because of the human experience and knowing how unfortunately savage we tend to be as human beings that we are, I think probably we're closer to 95% of human beings have had one of these adverse experiences. So when someone comes into coaching with me, 
I don't even ask them. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think we need that, mm-hmm. right? But I do need to know, like, what is the goal? What are we trying to do? And how do we get there? Mm-hmm. And what is your next goal, Michael? You've accomplished a lot in, young, in your young life. Where are you going? Yeah, you know, to be honest with you, and, and this is my own, you know, <laughs> my own trauma experiences, I, I haven't accomplished anything yet. Right. I look at my life as a measurement of I'm 37 years away from what I want to do. My goal is very simple. I want to end generational trauma in my lifetime. That's almost impossible. Like, do you under like like I don't think people really wrap their head around this? It's improbable, it's impossible, it's impractical, it's insane, it's borderline crazy. And uh I go, well, ain't gonna stop me. So that's it. That's the mission. That's why I get up every day. I just don't want another kid to have to tell you a story like I told you. Yeah. How can people learn about your work and work with you? Yeah. So I'm, I'm everywhere on the social medias at Michael Unbroken, but I have the Think Unbroken podcast. And I, I will say this. If you sit down and you take a piece of paper and a pen and you listen to that, it'll change your life. Because my mission when I record that show is to give everybody everything. And do you have guests or is it just you? Yeah, both. Both. Yeah. And you have a book? I just ordered it. Tell the people about your book. Yeah, I have a couple. Um, so I wrote Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma. That book is very much a 101 entry level into this. And the reason why it's a 101 entry level is because it's even in what I wrote and what I put together, it's still a lot, right? And so that book I, I wrote, it's not my life story. It is the prefaces because of context, right? But the rest of the book is part journal, part coaching, part study, part research, part education, right? And it's very much built to be a companion for you on this journey. Do you think it's, or maybe you've had the experience, can people suggest to someone, I think you need this kind of coaching or counseling, or do you think that's a boundary that we should not? step over. I think that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because here's why. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink, right? It's that old adage. I have done things that are innumerably impossible, and yet I can't get my brothers to read my book or listen to a podcast or show up to an event, right? And And that's okay. If they ever want to, I will be here. And so we can make suggestions all day long. Because look, think about this. You might love Brussels sprouts, right? And if you're like, hey, Michael, yeah, right? So perfect example. And you're like, eat Brussels sprouts. I'm gonna be like, uh, no, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I got green beans over here. I'm taking care of it. It's just like, you know, when, when you go through anything in life, you have to be the one to make the decision. Can, can we plant the seeds? Sure. Absolutely. Hey, this person over here might help you a lot. But ultimately, it's our life is in our hands. We have to be the ones to decide what's next. Yeah, and I think recommending a podcast is a pretty simple. Like you said, your brothers haven't listened yet. I have family that don't listen to my stuff either. That's fine. But you know, the listeners of my podcast and your podcast might just say, "Oh my gosh, I listened to this really interesting conversation the other day," and not even put a box around it. Just say, "Might might interest you," you know? Because I'm like you, I want to disseminate information, plant a seed. Somebody that hears it might not be the one who needs it, but maybe they'll mention it, you know, and so that's why we do these conversations. So before I let you go, I'm just curious, button it up for us. What would you leave people with? 
Yeah. You know, I, I think that people feel very much alone in this, right? And this conversation is uncomfortable. It's the elephant in the room of mental health care. Child abuse is swept under the rug, unlike anything else on planet Earth. And so first off, know that you're not alone. There's 8 billion people on planet Earth. Chances are someone else has been through this. That means that you can build community around it. You can find support around it. You're not an anomaly, right? No, it's this dark thing. You're not alone in it. And this, and I wrote this in my book, though trauma may be our foundation, it is not our future. Perfect. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for your time, for everything that you do, for all the people that need you. I appreciate having you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. You're welcome. People, be back next week with another fabulous episode of Rebellious Wellness Over 50. Tell your friends to join us. Thank you. Hey, everybody. I have a favor to ask. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you listen to, please leave a review on your favorite site for listening to podcasts. You can also leave a comment on my website where you'll find the podcast at the podcast tab or under any of the guest podcast episode pages. Thanks. It means a lot to me and I appreciate you. Be well till next time.